Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushville. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for Sunday, January 8, 2023. Blind and visually impaired people have been using the IRA app on their smartphones to read mail and instructions, identify bottles and packages, locate misplaced items, match clothes, navigate indoor and outdoor surroundings, shop, solve computer problems when the speech doesn't speak, and so much more for over five years. In 2023, IRA is making several changes to their pricing plans. Their job seeker service will now be limited to one free 30-minute call per day. Non-subscribers to IRA, known as guests, will be able to make one free 5-minute call for any purpose once every 48 hours. Paid subscribers can make one free 5-minute call for any purpose every 12 hours. After January 16, 2023, IRA will accept no new subscribers to several plans, such as the ACB and NFB discounts. Anyone subscribed to one of these plans by January 16 may choose to 1. Continue on their plan through 2023, 2. Change to one of the current 2022 retail plans, intro 30 minutes for $29, standard 120 minutes for $99, or advanced 300 minutes for $199, or choose one of the new 2023 retail plans to be announced soon. For more information, call 800-835-1934 or visit www.iraaira.io. We remind you that the large print wall calendars are now here. They're great for keeping notes on appointments, calls, meetings, and more. And their large print numbers are easy to read. Calendars are provided through the generosity of the Louisville Downtown Lions Club and are available upon request to anyone who needs them. They are free of charge and these are the same calendars that are distributed by the Kentucky Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. To request your large print calendar from KCB, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at Kentucky dash acb dot org the following meetings and events will be held on the kcb zoom line the number is six six nine nine zero zero six eight three three and the code is eight six two nine eight eight nine six nine seven two the january meeting for the support alliance of the visually impaired in owensboro is a hybrid activity it's on tuesday january 10 from 1 to 3 p.m. Central, in person, at the Wesleyan Heights United Methodist Church, 1215 Sherm Road, and it is also available on the KCB Zoom line. For more information, call Cheryl Lott, Savvy Immediate Past President, at 270-686-8689. The KCB Next Generation Chapter will hold its January business meeting on Thursday, January 12th, at 8 p.m. on Zoom. Learn more about apps that let you read books from public libraries at the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Roundabout 
from 7 to 9 p.m. on Friday, January 13. Our speaker will be Debbie Armstrong, the outstanding new editor of the Lua Ledger. The GLCB board meeting for January is at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 14. This meeting is open and all are welcome. The first meeting for the new year of ACB families is on Sunday, January 15. The January Board of Directors meeting for KCB is at 8 p.m. on Monday, January 16. The meeting is open and all are welcome. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will hold its next virtual support group on Wednesday, January 18 at 8 p.m. on the Zoom line. The first GLCB bingo of 2023 is on Friday, January 20. The roundabout is from 4 to 9 in person at United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville, and bingo is from 7 to 9 in person and on Zoom. Tri-State Library Users Book of the Month is The Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. If you've never read this book, you're in for a treat. Grab a copy from Bard or Bookshare and be ready to take part in Tri-State's book club and business meeting on Saturday, January 21 at 11 a.m. on Zoom. The Guide Dog Users of Kentuckiana will meet on Monday, January 23 at 7 p.m. KCCLV's second in-person support group will be on Monday, January 23, from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. The South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind in Bowling Green holds its social hour each Wednesday on its Zoom line. Call 669-900-6833 and enter the code 763-689-4411. Our featured speakers this week are Cora McNabb, Executive Director of the Kentucky Office of Vocational Rehabilitation, and Gay Panel, Branch Manager of the Independent Living Program in the Office of Voc Rehab. Both gave excellent presentations on Friday afternoon, November 18, at the 2022 KCB Conference and Convention. On page 2, Matt Salm, KCB President, introduces Cora and she is then followed on page 3 by Gay Panel, who shares details about the Independent Living Program and the many ways it can serve people throughout Kentucky, as well as some updates about the McDowell Center. We hope you enjoy both of these outstanding presentations, as they do answer many questions people often ask about agency services. Listen to Soundprints each week on ACB Media One, the mainstream channel. Our broadcast times are Sunday at 8 p.m., Monday at 8 a.m., Tuesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., Wednesday at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., Thursday at 10 p.m., and Friday at 1 a.m., 10 a.m., and 1 p.m. Listen on your Victor Reader stream or on the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. You can also listen anytime, 24 hours a day, on the KCB Information Line by calling 773-572-6318 and choosing number 2 from the menu. For more information about Soundprints and to receive a free subscription on CD, 
playable on any standard CD player, contact us at 502-895-4598. Page two. All right, so we're going to sail on the high seas of vocational rehabilitation and hear from the executive director of the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation, Cora McNabb. And then uh, after her, we'll hear from Gay Panel about independent living services and services at the McDowell Center. So, Cora, all yours. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Good afternoon. I, I want to thank you for having me on. I don't know that I ever remember coming to an ACB conference when it was this cold. <laughs> it is cold outside if you have not been out there. So I appreciate you inviting me today. I, and I always say this, I, we very much appreciate um, this organization and your advocacy for individuals who are blind on a local level, on a state level, and on a national level. Very, very much appreciate it. Just wanted to give you some overview updates on the agency quickly, um, and then maybe talk about some specifics. And then as he said, Matt said, Gay is going to talk about independent living, and I'll let her talk about the McDowell Center as well. I will say I came from the McDowell Center this morning and was able to go back into the part of the building that's being renovated, and it's very we're excited uh, about that. So right now we have around 415 employees statewide. Um, we have 48 vacancies in which um, that is certainly an improvement over the number of vacancies that we had probably about a year, year ago. Um, so we're open and open for business and providing services. We're on a hybrid schedule. Uh, some, of the, some of the staff do not telecommute at all. And then we have other staff that are in the office three days and have the privilege of telecommuting two days. Um, but they know that it's based on a business need. If there's a, a need for them to be at an appointment somewhere or in the office, then they are required to come in the office. But it is a nice perk that we can offer to the staff. It's also a nice nice tool the managers have if someone isn't performing, you know, then we know that we can pull that telecommuting uh, schedule and until their performance does improve. So it's kind of a win-win all the, all the way around. First of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about the federal level and our federal uh, oversight agency, the Rehabilitation Services Administration, uh, that fund our program. And recently I was at a state VR directors conference where we had uh, several presentations from federal, the federal employees uh, for the Rehab Services Administration, or as we called them, abbreviated RSA. And they expressed two very grave concerns to all of the state VR directors from agencies that are combined and then also 
you know, to all the agencies that are also the blind agencies. The two concerns that they had was one over the expenditure of funds. And with COVID, um, COVID was a huge contributing factor to this because while, as you all know, many of us were in our homes for over a year um, when they shut things down. And so agencies did not spend the money that was given to them and they returned a lot of money to the federal treasury or in our case, we did not return any money, but we have a large amount of what we call carryover funding. Um, when we get our grant award, we have two years to spend it. And we have found ourselves in the last two years at um, having the full amount of the prior year award um, sitting because we haven't expended it. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few few minutes. And so I can tell you that there's certainly not a budget issue for us. We were glad that we did not return any money, but we still have uh, a large amount sitting, that if, for lack of a better word, in the coffers, an old phrase. So the other um, concern that the Rehab Services Administration uh, expressed was the workforce participation rate. And that's just the number of individuals that are going to work. And, you know, there are a lot of things that have affected that. COVID has affected that. You guys, I know, have heard about the great resignation and that during COVID and during the shutdown, a lot of people... Um, reevaluated their priorities, and for a lot of them, it just wasn't work. And uh, so um, that is the other concern. And they were very open and honest with us that on the Hill in Washington, the legislature is looking at the VR program, and they have asked um, RSA for individual states uh, statistics both money and um, program statistics. So those were two um, areas of, of great concern to them. And, you know, the we think for us, the workforce participation rate has a lot to do with engagement. A lot of times we lose someone out the front door before we ever get them out the back door in, in a job for many um, different reasons. So those are a couple of concerns that I wanted to make you aware of. The good news um, for us, uh, in April, we were able to give all of our staff a raise. Um, and we, we worked hard on that for the last couple of years. We did an, a national study of every position in our agency, all 400 and some. It was a huge undertaking. And we were able to give raises to our staff. And then, of course, if you watch the news, you know that in July, there was another 8% um, that was given to state workers. And so all of our staff are making above the midpoint for salaries. We did have a few people that if they were already making a little bit um, up close to that midpoint or above that did not get a raise, but everybody got the 8% in July. 
And so we feel really good about the wages that we're paying our staff. Uh, another thing is that we have all categories open. We have nothing, no categories closed. We don't have any cost sharing of any kind. And so um, that's, a, that's a good thing and a positive thing for the first time in a long time. We're also in the process of purchasing a new case management system. Uh, when COVID hit and we had to go home and we started working from home and delivering virtual some virtual services and taking care of cases at home, we realized that we were not prepared and our staff did not have the resources that they needed to, to work remotely. And so we have um, upgraded and purchased a lot of laptops for staff. And now we are in process of an, purchasing a new case management system, which is a huge undertaking and is requiring a lot of time. Some of us are in two and three meetings a, game, a, a day. Um, all, uh, all of the division directors and directors and a lot of the managers and some of the staff are also engaged in those because it's the current system that we have is about 17 years old and it's kind of a homegrown system and it does not do everything for us that it needs to do. And then we have a lot of capital projects that are going on at the McDowell Center and the Perkins Center. The buildings are older and they need a lot of, a lot of different um, repairs. So right now that, um, I'm sure a lot of you know at the McDowell Center, the residential unit is pretty much gutted out and we're doing a lot of remodeling in there. In the upcoming year, the, the, there are three focus areas that we will have with uh, across the agency. And one is staff recruitment and retention. And like I said, that has gotten a lot better since we gave staff raises. We, we only, I think, had one resignation this month and we hired four people. So if your wages are pretty competitive, then you're able to, to hire. The, the areas that we are having the most trouble recruiting for are those specialized positions uh, in blind services and then also deaf and hard of hearing. Um, I really felt sorry for our deaf and hard of hearing manager. Um, she was down so many staff and she was covering caseloads all over the state um, in the last year, but she has been able to add some VR counselors and um, we have been able to add some additional staff in blind services, but we are still um, re in recruit recruiting uh, for some of those positions. And that will continue to be a focus of ours. And not only just the recruitment, but doing things that so our staff know how much we appreciate them and we need them. You have to keep people motivated. And that means a lot to them. Some For some people, that's as much as a raise is. The other thing we're going to work on are processes. Um, we're going to take a long, hard look at what uh, <clears throat> what keeps us from getting things done, getting done qu quickly, uh, paperwork, all of that. And so we're going to look at streamlining some of the processes. 
And then the third thing is awareness. Um, so uh, we're going to work on our out outreach materials, making people aware of the services that we provide. So um, I'll give you um, a little bit of some statistics. Um, first, I'll start with overall, the entire agency. And I, I looked at the current statistics. I didn't go back from the last two years. I start, and as you know, our, our, our finances are on a federal year, which is October to September. We operate on a program year, which is um, June, July, and August is the first quarter of the, I mean, sorry, May, June, and July is the last quarter of the program year. And then we also operate on um, a, a state calendar year. So we have all kinds of calendars and tracking. But what I'm going to give you statistics for today have been since January 1st. Um, so it's not a complete year, and we're getting ready to finish out the calendar year, and so these numbers will go up for the calendar year. But since January 1st, the entire agency has served 38,491 individuals. <clears throat> and of that 38,491, 47% of them are, are um, potentially eligible students. One of the things since we have been required to provide pre-employment transition services is we've seen a huge shift in the number of adults that we serve um, because we have to set aside 15% of our money for students. Um, so now we've seen a shift in the number. Uh, we're still serving more adults, but just barely with 47% being students. Um, this is a good number to look at because be, since January 1, we have had over 11,000 new referrals. And so we need our numbers to go up because our numbers went down in COVID like everything else. We've taken, um, of those new referrals, about 7,000 of them we've taken applications on and around 90% of those were were um, determined eligible. There are over 4,000 individuals that are in a training status. That means they're either in a secondary school, you know, career tech ed, over uh, um, on the job training. And we have around 1,200 individuals that are job ready now looking for employment. Over a thousand have um, graduated with credentials, their associate's degree, their bachelor's degree, their master's or graduate. And we have close to 3,000 individuals that have gone to work, making an average of $24 an hour, working about 34 hours a week. So all of our numbers are starting to go up and that is um, certainly very important. One number that we are working to improve is that successful closure rate. Like I said, that was one of the things that on a federal level, they are really scrutinizing. So right now, the, the rate is about 49%. 
So we're not very happy with that and we'll be focusing on that moving forward. And like I said, a lot of that has to do with um, how we engage individuals that come in for our services. One thing that I think is interesting when we I look at specifically the 18 VR counselors we have for the blind um, and, and their services, their successful closure rate is 23%. And that's where we would like to be overall. So there is, um, they're actually doing a pretty good job of keeping individuals engaged throughout the process. So we, st we still have 18 VR counselors. That's the same number we had prior to the merger in 2018. Um, the 18 counselors right now are serving around 1,000 individuals. So that's, that's down um, from what it was pre-COVID, but we're, we're starting to climb back up, thankfully which means they have an average caseload of about 56 individuals, which really isn't too bad. Um, that's probably a, a good size. Um, of that number of individuals, around 100 of them are students, those potentially eligible students that they're serving. So, and we do have see an increase in referrals since January. We've gotten 305 Referrals and about 72% of them were determined eligible. We have 167 individuals that are in some type of training status. Um, around 60 individuals are currently job ready. And there were, since January, we've had 29 that have graduated with their bachelor's, master's, graduate or um, a high school diploma that were in pro the program. So there's around 100 have become successfully employed and average earning of $18 an hour and 33 hours a week. And like I said, the closure rate um, is uh, very good. Only about 23% of the people are exiting without a job. So that's good to see. Um, we're not happy with the numbers yet, but we're, we are happy that we're seeing an increase in overall. And I hope this time next year, um, as things improve, that we'll see more increases across the board. You know, with with COVID and, and staff vacancies over the past two years, it's been really difficult, um, but things are definitely improving. So I, I know Gay's going to talk a little bit about the McDowell Center and the, what um, Heidi Kesterson has shared some numbers with her, but Helga asks that I let you know that we anticipate opening up the McDowell Center in early spring. We're shooting for March. The contractor was there on site today and talked to, to me a little bit. Uh, we have a waiting list of individuals that are uh, waiting to be that first group of residents in the dorm when we get it opened up. And we are planning to have a grand reopening event. So, um, and 
so that people can come in and ha we'll have an open house there. That that was really about all that I was going to um, report out. If I could just say one more thing, Helga wouldn't forgive me if I didn't talk about this a little bit. But um, they are participating in a community of practice on progressive employment to increase um, employment outcomes for individuals that are blind and visually impaired. And so she wanted me to make sure that um, you all knew that that was a special project that they had going on. So, and I'll be glad to take questions. Cora, could you tell us a little bit about the, about the progress and what's going on in the vending program? Was this enterprises? Yes. The the vendors, as many of you probably know, were really hit hard uh, during COVID because when businesses shop shut down, uh, their people were not coming into their snack shops or purchasing, you know, drinks out of machines or coming to the cafeteria. So that's been very, very um difficult. Um, for the vendors. And there were some, you know, relief funds that were available that uh, the vendors received um, as from, on a federal level that we dispensed. And then also um, there were some other things that some of the vendors were able to take advantage of, like unemployment. And um, I forget the other program that it was. I think it started with a P, but Anyway, um, the vendors have had a very, very difficult time. Um, we just recently um, had one of the vendors that uh, transferred from the transportation cabinet cafeteria to the L&N building downtown. And so the staff uh, worked last week in, in transitioning over that cafeteria in downtown Frankfurt, and it reopened this week. Um, you know, the IRS building up in uh, Covington used to be our largest vending location. And the IRS, uh, you know, sent everybody home and they have decided not to bring a lot of people back. And so it will go to only vending up in that area. So we've had some switchover of, of vendors there as well. And we're looking at um, new locations for vendors, but, you know, as you can imagine, um, until the economy picks back up and the cost of products and supplies and, and slow shipments, we're very carefully looking at locations to see if they're feasible for a vendor to make a living there. This is Adam. And how many active vendors are there, uh, Cora? Just, you know, we have a location uh, that are active. Right now, around 33 active vendors. Mm -hmm. You know, and we bid a lot of locations out, had no one to bid on them. And so we've, um, you know, assigned other vendors. To, we have vendors covering more than one location. Yeah. Is it more difficult or less difficult um, with the situation where people, everybody has shortages of employees, it, is it any less difficult to place a blind person 
today than it has been in the past? Or are we still, you know, that would be basically experiencing the employer being unwilling to hire a blind person? I think employers are definitely, it's a more open market and employers are more open to hiring all people with disabilities than they were before the pandemic. Well, this is Debbie Detheridge, and I've heard some um, mixed uh, answers on this one. If someone is, let's say myself is working, and I need just some uh, mobility training, or someone needs you know, just one service, is that possible, or do you need more than one service now to like get a counselor and get services? Well, with all categories open, I think that it's certainly worth calling and and asking and applying for services. I just have a follow-up for Debbie. I guess what my question would be is, what are the requirements for what would be category four, which would be the most open category, the one requiring the least? The category least four is is. I hope that I say this right because I should have brought those with me, but it's for one functional limitation and one service. Ah, okay. That that answers the question for me anyway. If when I get back, I look it up and I'm wrong, I'll let you know. Okay. Could be mobility, communication, you know, uh -huh. could be something that would be the function and then the service could be orientation and mobility. Gosh, Cora. There, there was a day, we both remember, when there was nothing that could be served because there wasn't any money except the most severe disabilities and needing, what, three or four services? It was really hard to get services. So yeah. things have really opened up in the yes. last several years after the merger. Matt, you want me to turn it over to Gay? Page three. Matt, you want me to turn it over to Gay? Okay. Thank you, Cora. And, uh, um, and now thank you to the group for also inviting uh, me to speak as well. Uh, it's always a pleasure for me to speak about independent living. I feel very passionate about this topic. So I look forward to an opportunity to speak um, about it. So I'm going to start with some pretty basics uh, because there may be some folks here who are not familiar with our independent living program. Um, we are um, known often as ILOIB, and uh, we are a branch within the division of blind services within OVR. And so those initials stand for independent living and older individuals who are blind. And so um, I will say uh, that sometimes that older uh, designation can be very misleading uh, because that program starts with people who are age 55. And um, I'm, I would imagine that I would have agreement in this room that 55 is not all that older. Uh, it's a younger number all the time. And so, uh, but we're talking about folks who are that age. Um, so the independent living um, ILOIB uh, division works with people um, who are basically of all ages. So as Cora said, we're starting with teenagers. We can start um, there. 
And then we are working with people who are considered to be seniors. And in the OIB part of our program, um, it's our privilege, I think, every year to serve at least two or three people who have reached age 100 or more and who are still um, living as independently as possible, and they're still requesting those services to assist them. Um, so every year I look for that statistic because, um, you know, what a privilege to meet those people. Um, they're inspiring to see what they're accomplishing and what their goals are. Um, so they're, they're unique to us. I think the other thing to know about independent living and OIB is that we are unique within OVR as a whole. Because we are the program, as a gentleman in the back uh, made a little reference to, we are the program that does not necessarily have an employment goal at the end of our services. So the question might be, can people have an employment goal? Yes, they might have an employment goal. Maybe they will come into independent living first, receive some basic training to help them manage their daily living tasks, and then move on into the VR program. Um, or maybe they have actually entered into the VR program and while trying to get established in employment, um, it's discovered that they have some sort of a barrier to their independent living, daily living task. And so, you know, it's very hard to be successful at your job if you're not very successful in your home. And so um, we might start then with a person who already has an employment goal, but is uh, trying to overcome those barriers. So, our goal then is really very simply stated in that we're trying to assist people to either maintain or improve their abilities to perform daily living tasks. Um, we usually provide services directly within the home environment. Um, some people will ask us then, you know, what does that mean, your home environment? Does it mean that you have to, you know, have your name on the deed? Is it considered to be your home environment? Um, what if you happen to be living with another part of your family? Um, you know, what if you're maybe residing in uh, some sort of residential center? Um, all of those things are, you know, the way we define home is where you live and where um, you are trying to be as independent as possible. So wherever that might would be. So during the last couple of years, um, we've adjusted our service delivery model to quite uh, a bit. For those of you who have known us a long time, you know that pre-COVID, we were 100% in-person direct services. Then COVID struck and, you know, how do you manage uh, an independent living program now that, you know, we were all at home? So we uh, adjusted to a 100% uh, virtual remote service delivery model. Um, and then here comes like the third year around and things are a little bit more open. We're going back into offices. So now we have adopted a, a very much of a hybrid, hybrid approach where we are back in person and also still continuing our remote virtual offerings. Um, so when someone comes to us, um, part of the process is to find out how they would like to receive their services. Um, at this point in time, some people are still choosing to receive only remote services. They're not comfortable with someone coming into their home. So we are accommodating that. Other people have gone strictly to, um, you know, in person. If they can't have it in person, then they don't want it. So we're, we're doing in person for, for those folks. But the nice thing about it has been 
I think is that by being able to do uh, a hybrid, um, we probably can provide a little bit more to people because now our counselors have the ability to not only to be able to provide that in person when I can come out and see you, but um, during times when it's not advantageous to go directly to that home due to geography or bad weather or whatever it might be, we still have the option now of continuing service delivery through our remote services. Um, so speaking of the people who are going to deliver those services, there are currently nine um, independent living counselors uh, located throughout the state. Um, so if you're statewide, I want to tell you where they are uh, so that you'll know how closely uh, you might be located. We are in uh, Paducah, Bowling Green, Elizabethtown, Somerset, Louisville, Lexington, Covington, and Pikeville. So we are literally Paducah to Pikeville at this point in time. Um, and uh, we cover every single county in Kentucky, so it doesn't matter where you might be residing. It's a good opportunity to tell me, uh, for me to tell you today that I did not have to travel alone today. It's one of the few times that I didn't have to make this uh, road trip myself today. Uh, our Bowling Green counselor uh, came with me, so she's here also, Chance Groves. So if any of you all from that area would like to meet her um, personally today, she, she is here. Um, of those nine that I mentioned to you, Three of those counselors um, have started within the last six months. So Cora spent quite a bit of time talking about what personnel has been like. Um, it's been a hard thing in the independent living program. Uh, we got down to some very small numbers um, with, with staff. So we have three people that have been here less than uh, six months. Um, we're really excited about that because um, two of those, of, of the three, are located one in Somerset and one in Paducah. And those two regions happen to be two of our busiest regions um, in the state. And so to have both of those vacant at the same time was quite the hardship on our program. And, and our numbers, our reporting numbers, um, show that, that we did not have uh, someone there uh, the last uh, year. It um, and it took a year just for um, kind of perspective, it took a full year to fill those positions. And as Cora mentioned, that was with us out recruiting, posting over and over and over again. Uh, and it took a full year to get someone there. Um, I think that um, it's also though really positive to notice that we hired an additional counselor for the Louisville office. So we had been at one counselor in the Louisville office for a long time. Uh, for those of you all who have, have a lot of history, know that we at one time had a three-person office in Louisville um, and got down to one person. And so we now are back up at two. Um, and with our uh, vision set for the future, hope to be able to get back um, to that full capacity again. But we're excited to have that second person um, there for sure. So even being short-staffed last year, um, we had 497 independent living cases that were documented uh, for physical year 22. And we operate off of CORA's federal physical year, so we operate October 1 through September 30th. So 497 um, cases were documented during that period of time. Though Of those um, 
folks being served, they represented 96 Kentucky counties. Um, so the six counselors that we did have working hard last year uh, still got in a lot of, of um, miles and a lot of people. Of the 497, over 400 of those people served were 55 and over, again, going back to the gentleman um, in the back. So uh, a high percentage of our cases are people over age 55. Um, two of the main things that we do um, is to provide fundamental skills training and also a connection to other blindness resources. So if someone's new to the blindness world um, and comes to and speaks with one of our counselors, one of the primary things we would do is to try to hook them up with other resources um, that they might not know about at that point in time. So that's a little bit of, of our um, kind of the basics of things. Uh, I wanted to kind of give you an idea of a couple of the other highlights that we had. Um, everybody's been aware of the Eastern Kentucky flooding and the devastation that we saw there. But one of our program highlights was um, that in Eastern Kentucky, our counselor that's located in Pikeville, the various emergency management teams reached out to her directly. We felt so happy that, that they would track us down and reach out directly um, to us. And they had our counselor to go with them as they made visits. Um, they took her to uh, shelters uh, where people were staying. They took her to individual homes when they went to um, make visits to people who had received um, some sort of notice from the emergency management team. And there she was able to meet um, with people who some of them had had our services in the past. And so she was able to help start to get them reestablished if they had lost um, their technology, like one person mentioned the importance of technology. If they had lost their technology in the flood, then she began helping them to find ways of getting that technology back, whether it was directly through us or, or through another source. Um, but interestingly enough, she also ran into people in these shelters that had never met us before. So she found some uh, visually impaired people in those counties that were needing our services. They actually needed our services before the flood, but because of the flood, they found us. And so there was some good that came um, from that. I think one of the more interesting things that she was asked to do is everyone, I'm sure you saw um, the news reports where the um, travel trailers were brought into Kentucky and put in the campgrounds and those kind of things so that people had temporary housing, um, temporary being kind of a loose kind of word in this situation. But one of the things that the emergency management team asked her to do was to come out to those campgrounds and do an evaluation of those trailers to see how accessible they were going to be for visually impaired people to live in. And so she was able to give uh, the emergency management team some pointers on what would be needed um, there if, if visually impaired people were placed in those trailers. So uh, we were really proud of the fact that they would reach out to us and counted us as having the expertise needed for what they were accomplishing. Um, another one of the highlights, I think, of our uh, program year is um, we are kind of ahead of the curve a little bit with the agency in that we have done a tremendous amount of work on our outreach. Uh, we have lots of new outreach materials. 
uh, that we are using. Um, we've got all kinds of stuff with our branding on it. Uh, the Independent Living Program has its own logo now. We have our own little branding that's going on our materials. So if you get something from us, you're able to spot it more immediately uh, of where it's coming from. Um, we've got a new brochure that we've got in now who should be getting printed real soon. Um, that's going to give more explanation about who we are and where we are and how to contact us. Um, so that's one of the things we're actually really proud of. And I, I must brag a little bit um, on people like Chance and the others. The, that first year that we spent in COVID when we were on lockdown um, and just, you know, trying to find out, one of the things that we did was spend a lot of time that year on developing outreach. So when we came back out of um, those lockdowns, we were kind of up and ready to go. We had things, and we we knew where to take it to. Um, so I'm really proud of the fact that we are a little bit ahead of the curve on on that. So what's going to be new this coming year, or the year we're currently in now, um, for independent living? Uh, Cora's mentioned our new case management system. Um, we are right there in the in the throes of that. Um, you know, like everything else in this world, there's upsides and downsides. Um, so I'm really brave to mention in front of my executive director here that there's a downside. <laughs> but, um, you know, the the upside to this is that for the first time ever, the independent living program is going to be fully integrated into the case management system. So um, it really uh, puts the independent living uh, program on a much more uh, level playing field when it comes to the case management world um, that we're in. So that's a gigantic upside. Um, really happy about that. The downside for us is um, for the independent living program, we are going to experience the most change as a result of the new case management system. It's going to uh, change the way that we do our casework. It's going to change the way that we uh, uh, manage some things that, that have to be done. Um, so it's going to be probably a bigger learning curve for the staff at the, for our independent living counselors. Um, so, you know, there's, with any kind of change, there's always that, uh, do we really have to kind of feeling, um, but we're going to do it in a couple of years from now, we're going to, you know, somebody's going to look back and, and, uh, be glad that we did. The other big thing that we're, that we're involved in with, uh, independent living is, um, our technical assistance. For the OIB program, um, Mississippi State has a federal grant that allows them to do technical assistance for programs like ours. Some of you all have already participated by uh, attending our stakeholders meeting that was conducted by our technical assistance facilitators. Um, so I wanted to take this moment to thank you for that participation, to take your time out, to sit through some of those things um, and, and give your input. Um, we really appreciate that. And so I wanted to tell you, as a result of that, that our facilitator told us that we had, uh, of the, all the ones that she's been involved in, we had the largest turnout for stakeholders of any that she's ever done. Um, and then she uh, reported really positive feedback. So, of course, there's always things we know we can improve upon. But in general, she gave us a really good um, response back. But we were very happy that we turned out the largest group um, of, of folks with that. But as a result of technical assistance this uh, year, we're going to be um, doing a few things um, that we know. Um, one, we're going to be uh, pretty heavily involved in updating our procedural manual. Um, so 
you know, that that's going to kind of be coming up to where we already are. We're kind of functioning above where our procedural manual is now. So we're going to bring it up to that level. Um, we're looking at ways of, of expanding our program's parameters and increasing our staff training opportunities. So through this year, um, it, it does last a year that we'll be receiving this technical training. And a few things that we know we're going to work on um, is continued training for our new staff and then uh, potentially adding additional positions as we go through that. Um, we're wanting to continue to build our program in a way that will continually offer opportunities for new service delivery because, um, you know, we, we feel like that as we expand our service delivery model, it will allow us to take a look at our personnel to see, um, you know, if we need more people, how we need them, what kind of people that we need, and where we might need them. Maybe we don't need all just counselors. Maybe we need some other people as well. So we're really going to take a hard look at that this uh, fiscal year. And we're going to continue to hone our service delivery model. And I really think if, if Carla should invite me to come to this every single year, that would be a point that I would make every single year, that we're going to continue to hone in our service delivery model. Because from my experience, it's, you know, if, if you've become stagnant, then, you know, you're, you're going to begin to die. So you always are honing in on your service delivery model and in increasing that potential. Um, so that kind of brings me to my end of, of independent living. Uh, but I, I did want to just thank you again for how valuable a partner you are, um, for directing people our way. We have a lot of referrals that come to us because of you all. We really appreciate um, that so very much. And I can either take questions now about independent living or I can go on to uh, McDowell Center, however you all want to do it. Yes, sir. Um, Bill, Bill Wright, um, I, uh, I'm blind. I've been blind for uh, several years. And um, I have not had a uh, eye uh, test or eye report uh, in several years. Um, is a eye test or eye report uh, needed for someone uh, receiving service? And and I will answer strictly from the independent living perspective. I would I would let Cora. Uh, no, this is this, this this is independent living. Okay, for independent living, um, the way we work with vision reports is we uh, if someone has any functional vision. We want to get an eye report for them uh, because it gives us such a much better idea of how we might can work with remaining vision, especially if they're interested in technology that would involve any sort of magnification devices. Um, if someone is totally blind or has been known to be blind for a long time, it is not required for eligibility that the person have a, a new vision report. We have a process within our system that allows us to waive that um, when that situation occurs. If someone, uh, just to go back, if someone comes into us with vision and we don't know them, uh, so we don't know anything about their functional vision, we will request that vision report. Well, I've been summoned to speak about McDowell Center, so I will do so. Um, this is from Heidi Kesterson, um, so I'm just uh, going to be letting you know her statistics. 
it says from January 22 till now, they have served a total of 59 students. 49 of those were through the VR program. 10 of those were through independent living. And those folks live in 26 counties. And of those going through, 24 have completed um, their training program. They currently have 14 people in training with three more evaluations scheduled for this month or through the end of the year. As far as the staffing issues at the McDowell Center, they have um, assistive technology, orientation and mobility, and the personal adjustment counseling positions open. They are currently utilizing contract staff to provide AT and vendors or itinerant staff are providing orientation and mobility training. Uh, however, despite all the openings that they currently have, every student uh, currently enrolled is receiving training in all of the needed areas. Her dorm update uh, says that they are in the renovation phase. Um, and as Cora mentioned, that they hope to have that done by March and with a grand opening in mid-April. And she also wanted to uh, let everyone know that all staff and student computers have been updated to 2021 Fusion, Fusion and JAWS. Um, so for those who have interest in those trainings, and the agency license, which allows for quicker updates and is set up for new staff. So that is my update on um, the McDowell Center. Heidi's out of town today or she would have um, loved to have been here. So the last thing I will say is um, Heidi did send along some of the new outreach materials for McDowell Center. We're gonna leave them at the front table. So anyone interested in uh, picking up something for the McDowell Center can find it over there. And thank you again for your time from myself, Cora, and our entire agency. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.